This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. I would like to start by recounting something you were just talking about in working in the wakes and winds don't stay one. Um, But of course, because I'm a journalist, I tend to focus on the role of journalism in all of this. Um, journalists in 2020 were um, doing a deep dive into diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, looking at the long history of uh, legacy media and mainly being run by white men, and the decisions, therefore, about news coverage being made by white men. Um, how can how can the what's the responsibility of the journalists? Um, when you're talking about asking people to work to work in the wakes? I think the, the role of journalism never changes, right? It is to bear witness and to present facts. Uh, it is, is, you're kind of, re- well, not kind of, you're actually recording history in real time. And you do that not just for the daily consumption, but also for the historical uh, uh, record. And for people to like me, you write a book, you go back, you look at all, read all the newspapers from that period, figure out what's going on. That's the important thing. The one thing that you that we have to disabuse ourselves of is the fact is the idea that information alone is sufficient to make people do the right thing. People often do the wrong thing in spite of knowing that it's wrong. They do it because it's they know it's wrong. Right, so there's one great example, which was a, a, a hundred years ago, I think it's right, uh, 101, two years ago, uh, Southern newspaper, uh, or a band of newspapers, but led by a, a newspaper in the South, do this big expose on the Klan, rise of the Klan. They get some, you know, one of the, uh, an insider gets them all the rituals and all the things, and they, they post all this stuff a major series is massive newspapers across America read this thing. The Klan threatened to sue about it. Um, and people thought like, Oh my God, this is so horrible. This will be the end of them. Klan membership skyrocketed. That doesn't mean that the journalists weren't doing their job. They were doing their job. It's just that, being told that something is wrong doesn't always change people's minds about the thing. And in fact, sometimes what we do actually gives more exposure to the thing. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It's just as that's the way human nature works. There were people in the Midwest maybe were, maybe were not as clued into what the Klan meant, what it stood for, what it you know what it was, how big a thing it was in the South. They became very familiar because these this series were reprinted in newspapers across the country. And so I think I just say that use that as a cautionary tale about whether or not we think that there's something that we as journalists can do that's going to just because we shine a light on something that that means that, you know, that that becomes the disinfectant sometimes. And and sometimes it comes a spotlight (laughs) And, and, and people are attracted to what they see. I guess I think when you say the fad begins to fade, so I also think that it's part of the problem that some of these issues recede from the headlines. And 
and therefore these other acts become more insidious and people are simply not paying attention and journalists are not paying attention. Well, see, this is, okay, here's the thing about journalism. It serves many masters. Most these new organizations are not like yours. They are, they are corporations. They have a profit. They have to make a profit. They have, many of them uh, have uh, are shareholders. They have to make reports. What is going on? How do you have all this overhead? Why are you not making enough money? And they look around at news and they have to make decisions about coverage. And on the one hand, you're covering whatever you think is the most important news. On the other hand, you're following what people are paying the most attention to. And so it becomes a kind of chicken egg thing. We only ask about uh, racial harmony when there's a racial problem. There's no polls now. Zero. So you can think about it. I mean, there, there's, there's a couple of like long-running polls that ask the same question every year and ask the same question every year for decades. They still ask it because that's part of what they do. But in terms of the polls you see, the Times-Siena poll or, or, you know, whatever national poll you see, it never gets asked unless somebody's burning something down, right? So is that, does that mean that the issue is receding or is news contributing to the fact that it's receding? Because we don't, we don't ask about it anymore. Look around at, 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 you know, because I just, as I just said, these police units are not going away. Look around at your television news. Look who the experts now who they have on to talk about any of those issues around policing. Almost every one of them is a retired police officer. The entire, the entire discussion has been tilted away from any activism. Right? So if that's what we're doing, it, it plays into, it helps to shape how other people think about it. If we only talk about, you kind of, we, we look at the polls, we follow what people are thinking, which I think is, fair to some degree, but it also means that we are also starving away things that we ourselves thought, thought were important one year ago. If the thing didn't change, why did we change? So I would like to continue for a moment on this journalism theme, but I want to make it personal. So you started the Shreveport paper as a very young person. So I'm wondering- I was still what, in college. Yeah, so what is it? And you were on your college paper and chief editor of this classroom. So what was it that attracted you to journalism? And I'm particularly interested in you talking about the graphics and the visual side of journalism that you found to be so compelling. My mother always got the newspaper. And so I, my only memory of her is of reading and she's a school teacher and she didn't watch TV. She watched The Wheel of Fortune, which is a word game. So she, she's all of it is like uh, at Jeopardy, which is like a fat game. So like she watched those things and she watched the news. But there was no other things she watched that she read all the time. And even when we were, you know, we were poor people. So even when th times were hardest, the one thing she refused to give up was the subscription to the newspaper. So I remember the newspaper always being around. And back then they used to publish a... Uh, called mini page, which was like once a month or something. It was for kids. 
So I would like be doing my thing next to her reading her paper. So I just, it, it, the paper has always been a thing in my life. Never thought about being a journalist, by the way. Uh, but I did love the idea of newspapers. So we would, I remember I was part of a 4-H. We went to local newspaper and they had the, the big press and it was clanking and they made us, let us print our names. So I love, there was a romantic kind of notion about the press for me. Never, never, never thought I was going to do this. Uh, I was in college and um, I wanted to be, I wanted to not just be a politician. I wanted to be the governor of Louisiana, very specific, <laughs> very, very specific because they were rascals and hor horrible, crazy people. And I was like, they're having the most fun in the world. I want to be that. Anyway, so, uh, and so I was majored in political science and English because I wanted, thought I would become a lawyer and then I'd do that. And my English professor the first one with my big English classes, he liked my writing and he says, he hated his job. So he says, what are you going to do if you don't go to law school? You want this stupid English degree. <laughs> so he says, you know, why don't you double major in pre-law and journalism? That, that way, if you don't go to law school, you'll have like a trade. You can go. And I was 18. It made total sense to me. Uh, and when I got into the mass communications department, you had to choose a concentration this is not laudable. This is not honorable. This is not some sort of lofty thing. I chose visual communications because I was like, this is easy and I can go to all the parties and keep my scholarship. So that it was no, it was not complicated. Uh, and so I ended up, you with were a, 18. Yeah. yeah, I was 18. So, so and I, I get, ended up with a degree in mass communication with a concentration in visual communications, which, you know, once I realized I wasn't going to law school, I was then completely freaked out that I had chosen this major. What was I thinking? Uh, and but I just told myself I'll just I'm gonna just try to be the best at it. And and I was graduating at a time when visual communications and data were big in newspapers, and I had a particular skill set that no one seemed to have, which was that I was trained as a journalist and I could write, and I also could do this visual thing. And so it made me very marketable. <laughs> It was just a fluke that I was marketable, but it may be very marketable. Okay, great story. So I'm, I'm just going to pluck this out from go, one of the go, questions go. from the audience. And given that, okay. <laughs> and given today's environment, what would you tell a young person who's thinking about a career in journalism? I don't know what journalism is anymore. Like, I, I mean, I, um, the, it, the, the possibilities are so broad. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I don't know what it is in terms of is historical mission, which I think is still the same. It's just that the the roles that people can play other than being a reporter or other than being an editor are so many roles um, uh, that you'd have to narrow the conversation for you to, even, to even give the advice. Uh, there are things, uh, ways that people tell stories now that didn't even exist when I was in college and thinking about the same things. Uh, I will say that I think uh, that craft in storytelling is the thing that elevates it and focusing on that part of what we're doing is really important to do. Uh, you know, I'll, one of the things is the fearless ferreting out of the facts. But there are a lot of people doing that, fewer now than before, but uh, the thing that transforms that 
is someone with the ability to tell it. And in some newsrooms, you know, there's, there are particular writers, they'll be in a group, you see the multiple people on the headline, on a byline. It's because some of those people are really good at finding things, but there's this other person who's really good at putting it together and writing it. And so that person gets attached to the byline because they can write it and the other people can't write it as well. And so I think that's really important. And it's even more important in the work that I do as a columnist because everybody has an opinion. <laughs> you know, everybody has an opinion. And, and, I'm, and I'm not the person very often who's, you know, in the back room going through the million pages of documents. I'm giving my opinion about the person who did the million pages of documents. So in my job in particular, craftsmanship becomes really important and clarity uh, and ability to make connections. All of that is the only thing that separates me from the other thousands of people who are giving opinions in writing. When did you realize you wanted to move from classic fact storytelling to commentary? And what were some of the biggest influences on your opinions? Uh, the, the, the assumption in the question is that this is a choice. <laughs> it was not. Uh, so I, I, um, I've been at the Times for 12, 13 years. I've been running the graphics department and uh, National Geographic called and said, the, the art director of National Geographic called, which is the only place that I ever thought of that I would work other than the Times. And this guy says to me, I'm leaving my job. You're the only person I want to have it. Do you want it? I was like, of course I want it. Uh, and uh, so I become the art director of National Geographic, but I had kids. My ex, I, I'm the primary custodian for my children and my ex had moved away. But it, as soon as I took the job, she moved back to New York. And I'm like, oh my God, now I have, I moved, took a job in DC and I, we got to figure out this custody thing around visitations and things. So I was flying to work every morning and flying back to Brooklyn every night. And this went on for nine months until they said, we're not paying for this anymore. And then I took a train to DC every morning and then back to New York every night. Um, it was the craziest thing. But uh, I wrote a book. Yeah, I had all this time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, towards the end, I just... I was so exhausted, I didn't, didn't know how exhausted I was. And I took the month of December off and I literally could not leave home. I was sleeping all day, wake up to deal with the kids and I'd go back to sleep and I realized I can't do this. This is killing me. Um, and the executive editor of the New York Times kept asking me to come back to the Times anyway. So we had lunch. He says, what do you want to do? I, you know, this is, if there's young people out here, this is one thing you have to do when, when you're, when somebody asks you to kind of make a job, you can't really make, a, make up a job. You, you have to solve a problem. Nobody wants to make an extra budget line to create a job for you. That doesn't, doesn't work that way. You have to figure out a way to save them money or make them more money, not cost them money. Uh, and I realized that they were doing this thing called uh, op charts because I had been a graphics editor and they were paying each person time you know, a freelance every time. I said, let's just put all that money together, make a salary. I'll make all the op charts. I'll be on salary. On salary. Make total sense, solve the problem. No extra money has to go out the door. Uh, 
And when I go in to talk to the uh, editor, the opinion editor, who's Andy Rosenthal, I've known Andy forever, and he says, oh, everybody thinks this is great. Um, are you, what are we going to call you? And I said something op charted. He said, oh, we're going to call you a columnist. And I said, okay. He says, are you going to introduce these charts with some words? He says, what, what like 400 words? I didn't know what that even meant. I didn't write. Uh, and he said, I said, yeah. He says, okay. And he took a phone call and he waved me out of the room. And like that, I had become a columnist in the New York Times. This is not a plan. This was not something that I had thought about, that I wanted. I, you know, and, and I realized in the elevator that this man had just made me a columnist in the New York Times. No, I was no longer a private citizen. I was now a public figure. I went outside. I couldn't catch my breath. I leaned against the building so I could catch my breath because I was panicking at what had happened. And, you know, but, but it's a big, prestigious job. So you can't complain. There was nobody. I couldn't cry about it. So, so I had to figure out on-the-job training how to do this job that other people would kill for, and somehow they had given it to me. So I was, like, freaking out. And so I had to, you know, but there were people at the times who were very helpful. Um, Frank Rich, who I still think is one of the best columns Times has ever had, was incredibly nice, and he would just give advice all the time. And, uh, and one of the things was that I... He, there was a columnist that was kind of a short-term columnist on contract. He says, he'll never work. And I said, why, Frank? He says, because he wants everybody to like him. So I, the first thing I realized is you can't do this job trying to do it for clicks. And you can't do it for people to like you. You're not trying to upset the readers, but you are trying to be true. And no human being is ever going to agree with another human being 100% of the time. You just have to write your truth and see if it finds a place in an audience. The second thing was that I couldn't try to sound like I belong there. Uh, one of the other columnists had, had this uh, saying, which was that the, the columnists were like an orchestra that everybody played a different instrument, but to, together it sounded to make good music. And so I said, like, oh, well, I guess I'm the banjo because like, I'm from the South. I'm a poor kid from the South. But I had to, you know, um, James Baldwin once said, like, when he was writing his first book, he thought he couldn't finish it. And he went away to Switzerland, took a Betsy Smith album because he said he had to try to rem remind himself of how he must have sounded as a child. And what I had to do was to stop trying to sound like I belong there and remind myself of how what my voice actually sounded like. And when I write, I now think about the old people I grew up around and how would I explain it to them? Because that is the truest voice for me. So for those here who haven't had the opportunity to read your incredible book, Fire Shut In My Bones, um, they're missing an amazing story. Um, where did you find the bravery to write that story? And did it give you the release that maybe you hoped for? Again, the, the question assumes yeah. that it's not true. So, uh, so first I was, uh, when I was at the Times, 
right before I left, there was a little restaurant, not nothing fancy, little restaurant that was on the block where the Times was, a Japanese restaurant. And we would often go there, some friends of mine would go there after work for a drink or some something to eat. And right across Times Square was Essence Magazine's building. And so a lot of those editors would come to the same place. So we'd often sit around chatting and drinking together. And one day I was talking about having to learn to do my daughter's hair as a single man and how I had, you know, taken her to a salon. And I said, you, if you just, I'll pay you. You just do it and let me watch you because I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, I got a tackle box for all the stuff they told me to get because I didn't know what to put it in. Uh, and they said, oh, let's make a great Father's Day thing. And they told me to write this thing, which is, I think, 200, 300 words. It was the tiny, tiny little entry. But I wrote it and I thought, I have a lot of those. So when I started to commute to D.C., I just started to write down all these stories from my life. Wasn't thinking about a book. I was just thinking that I'd have these little short stories that I may be able to sell to magazines. Uh, and it just grew and grew and grew. I wasn't selling anything, but I kept writing, writing, writing. It got to like 30 or 40,000 words of a document. And I thought, huh, this is probably something in here. I should read through it and see if there's something that makes sense. And then by the time I, the thing happened at the Times where they gave me this job as a columnist, I realized, uh, again, this is Baldwin, uh, a lesson from him, which was when he was talking about why he had come out as gay. He said, because if I say it, no one can blackmail me. And from working my entire life in the news business, I knew this. You tell your own story, it belongs to you. If I find it out and I get the chance to tell it, it belongs to me. And I don't have to be kind. And news people do not have to be kind to you when they find out something that you are hiding and you are a public figure. So I knew then that I was being compelled to publish whatever I was writing. And so I then went through it to try to figure out what it was as a story, as a, as a book, rather than as just a bunch of short, short stories. And so that's how the book came to be. I wasn't, I, I didn't think I could write a book, number one. Number two, I didn't, what, didn't want to do it, but I felt compelled. And once I figured out what, I, what the arc of it could be, then I was encouraged to write it. I really wanted to write it um, because then I realized that it could help other children. I didn't have the language when I was a child to deal with it, but I had the language now and I could help other people even adults who had dealt with this thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't stressed out about it. Like I spent a year in therapy leading up to the publication of the book, not because of any revelation in the book. I just kept thinking, if I publish a book and it's bad, I'm like, what is that going to be? Like, I was like, that is the death of a writer. Like your first book is horrible. Um, so, I spent a year, this guy said, it'll be all right. I was like, no, it won't. You don't know what to talk about. It'll be all right. Uh, so, but it, but it did do the thing that I hoped that it would. It, it helped people. Um, I heard from a lot of people. Uh, and that, that, was, that was gratifying. So talk a bit about the opera. Like, where did that come from, and how were you involved? How, how involved were you? I was you? involved in the, the smallest possible way. So um, Terrace Blanchard had already uh, produced an opera for the St. Louis Opera called Champion, 
uh, about a boxer who was gay, kills a man in a ring, and there's more, um, you know, there's there's kind of more rumbling or dissatisfaction about the fact that he loves men than he kills somebody. Um, and he was looking for, they had asked him to write another, produce another opera. He was looking for another subject. His wife had read my book. She said, oh, I think this will be good. He read it. They, I got a call from the creative director of the St. Louis Opera saying, Terrence Blanchard would like to make your book into an opera. Would you meet with him? So they want to know if we got along. Uh, and I knew Terrence and we we're both from Louisiana. So I was like, whatever. Uh, and so they decided to make it into his opera. And, you know, my involvement is minuscule. I, we went to, for a week, we, they sat around and asked me a zillion questions and they went away and they produced music and they wrote the libretto. And I didn't see it until the night, the opening night. I didn't see, I was no part of this. This is, this is Terrence and, 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 uh, Kessie. So it is, so my experience is of watching it like other people watching it. Only it's worse because everybody in the theater is looking at my face, like, see if I'm going to cry. Like it's, it's really, uh, but it's a strange thing to see some, you know, people performing as you and saying words that you said and living your life on a stage. And I try to, and I still try to think of it as a separate piece of art, which it is. Um, and appreciate it as a piece of art. Uh, and also I can't, re I've only seen it twice because I can't keep going and reliving it. Um, but uh, it is it is a is an out-of-body experience to have that happen. I, I was trying to figure out, I, I wanted to, you know, I asked someone at the Met, I don't know if they ever got back to me about this. I'm not sure if there is another living person who is the subject of a major opera. Uh, so, so it's, it's strange uh, because people can see me walking around, uh, but after they've seen the opera. So are you an opera buff? And whether you are or not, what did you think of it? I, I thought the, the one about me was fantastic. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> I don't know about the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, I'm going to move here into a political question. Um, this is somebody writes here, nationally, California votes aren't as meaningful as other states. How can we come to make more of the difference? Or can't we? What is California's role in the larger landscape? What does that mean, though? I mean, a presidential election? Because uh, because it's such a large state, you send a lot of representatives to the House, uh, which is meaningful. Um, so I guess I, I guess the question is presidential elections? Senate? Or the Senate? There's nothing any of us can do about the Senate. Because, it, you know, it, this is the compromise that the founders made because of the slave states. So everybody has to seats. There are more people in Brooklyn than there are in Alaska, but Brooklyn doesn't have two seats. And there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, the So the only other question is the presidential side of things. Um, and 
you know, maybe one day you guys will send, a, put up a candidate. It looks like soon, maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, but 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 there's very little that we can do other that than California being a one of the centerpiece blocks. If if any of the big blocks move, it changes the math for everything else. So like that's why people keep focusing on Texas because it's tantalizingly close, but never quite close enough that it ever flips. But if you ever flip New York, California, or Texas, changes the entire map. Uh, so the the most important thing that California do can do is to hold steady, so that you. Know. <laughs> okay. Moving on to another subject, we've got a couple questions about AI. Okay. With the use of AI and the potential decline of social media, what do you foresee as the tools for emerging activists? Oh, this is, this is I'm 53 years old. I don't know about the emerging activists, and I don't know very much about AI. Uh, I, the, the only thing I know about AI, most of those things scare me to death. Um, but there are some upsides I have seen uh, in that in the news area, which is if you you could have AI and they, people doing experiments with this now, they're editing stories and then having a real human being on the other side of it to make sure that they didn't do something crazy. But it would allow for fewer people in newsrooms to produce more news. That could be good. Uh, but what I, the, the impact on the artistic world is, you know, you can't even fathom what this means. What does this mean? That, you know, that these algorithms can make any art that looks like it could come from anywhere. Um, it can recreate the cadence of language and poetry. Somebody, somebody could say, write a column about the president and Gaza and Israel in the voice of Charles Blow. And it would do it. It would do it. Um, not exactly. You know, I, got <laughs> little, I have a little something. Uh, uh, my flaws are mine, so... Um, but, but there, but it's frightening. I, I don't know what the future of that is. I, I feel like some regulation will come from Congress, which will be horrible because they don't know what they're talking about when they talk about, uh, technology, but no matter what America does, the rest of the world won't do it. So anyone with nefarious intent has use of the same tools. So... What does that mean? I don't know. It's it's this is a downer. I don't want to talk about this because this is because it, it, it really gets dark very quickly when the when the programmers of the technology keep telling us they don't know what why it's doing what it's doing. Well, that's not satisfactory. <laughs> it was it was telling a lie. Who taught it to lie? What is that? You know, or telling our reporter to divorce his wife because it was in love with him. What? You know, that's not, it's not good. I know somebody said the other day that AI just makes you think you can't trust anything. And you can't trust a picture. You can't trust a movie. That is playing out in the Gaza conflict. Even though 
the fakes are convincing and believable. People are mistrusting actual footage because they're like, could be AI. All right, so what does that mean for all of us? It means you all deserve a cocktail when you go home because it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have a, a question that's written on a piece of newspaper. That Remember what, remember what that was like, newspaper? <laughs> it simply says, why is Obama MIA? Well, actually, he just gave a speech. Did you see this? Um, he gave a speech uh, where, and it was kind of a moderate take. He didn't come down on any particular side. He kind of said uh, uh, it was about the Gaza conflict. There's no excuse for the terrorism, uh, but also you have to look at the whole history of the conflict to put it all in context. It, you know, he, he ever... This issue is so inflamed that saying no, no matter what you say, you can't win. So a lot of people are just not saying anything because everybody feels victimized. Uh, and, and also when you feel that a group that you belong to or associated with is under existential threat, that is not the time to have a, try to have a conversation with me about why I'm wrong. Like that is, it's hard. So uh, it's a a tricky thing. It's just a tricky thing. And everybody I've seen who tried to weigh in in even some kind of measured way, they've come under a lot of attack too. So it's, I I will give him a pat on the back. He, He doesn't have to say anything and he did. And that's, and it was, it was, it seemed to be kind of moderate and, but he needed to say something and he did. So I just like to return again to more of a personal question. And that is, um, when we talk about how you became a commentator, which was an accidental thing, but you still had to develop your opinions and how you were going to express those and what your voice would be. So, again, my question is, what really informs your opinions and have those changed over time? Can you think of, well, maybe one big area where you used to have one opinion and that's shifted? Well, in the beginning, I don't think we as private citizens or people who are not writing about our opinions pay attention to how contradictory our opinions can be, a kind of scattershot. But when you become a columnist, you quickly realize, no, it has to, you, there has to be a consistent clarity to what you're saying. So you have to resolve in yourself, how do I feel about this thing? And so I had to do a lot of that work about just looking at a subject and thinking through uh, a, a, a cohesive argument about that, I be, that, that was true to me, that this is how I believe. So I, basically, I avoided a lot of subjects where there was ambiguity for me because I couldn't, ha- I didn't have a clear thought about them. Um, and over time, I might have developed a clearer vision of, of how I feel about a concept. But what I think makes the best columns and the best columnists are people who write about the thing they're most passionate about. So I ended up just writing about things that I cared most about I, and the things that I was most familiar with. I grew up poor. I read about poverty a lot. I know it. Uh, 
Uh, I'm a queer man. I write about LGBT issues. I know them intuitively. I know them in addition to reading about those issues. Uh, I know about the impact that racism has had on my family, my community. So I know that intuitively. So I write about those issues. I love politics. I wanted to be the wanted to be a politician when I was a kid. I just love it. So I write about politics as an observer, not as a Washington D.C. creature. You know, even when I worked in D.C., I didn't live in D.C., so I, I don't know D.C. like that. I don't want to know D.C. like that. When I worked there, I was like, this is not a cool place. It's like Alabama with embassies. Like, it is not good. Okay. So, on a maybe equally serious note, um, we can all see the polarization that has existed for, well, for decades in different forms, but has been especially apparent in the last seven, eight years. Um, many people question whether we can ever overcome this or how do we have these conversations, even within our families, that we feel we can't have anymore because we're so polarized. Do you have optimism about that coming together or how do you see that process happening. I mean, next year is a significant election year. Well, um, there's different buckets of people. I, I hate to use the bucket because that's what Hillary Clinton said, the buckets, but, uh, but uh, there are different groups of people. There are some people who have, who are genuinely searching and trying to improve themselves, trying to be the best people they can be, and literally trying to be egalitarian as best they can. And maybe they are conservative because they have particular thoughts about how money should be spent and collected and taxed and how foreign policy should be conducted. Those people I grew up around all I, from the South. So I grew up around people that I thought were like that. And I understand that sensibility. And I'm always open to having conversations with people who are open and where we can agree on a basic set of facts. We just interpreting those facts in a different way. There's another group of people, though, who are who have basically committed themselves to uh, a form of uh, xenophobia, patriarchy, racism as a uh, race to the bottom kind of mentality that that feel that something has been taken from them and they are willing to break the country to take it back. I don't want to come together with those people. I don't know where the middle ground is for me and that people who think that way. Uh, because you could actually break it. <laughs> like it, it, it the, Societies fall. Or they, they fall from where they were. Uh, this is any person who's read hi any form of history knows the great civilizations don't stay the great civilizations. They all have a period and then they... The, we read about what happened, the Mayans or whatever. We, we got something happened. And our something could be literally at the ballot box, like that people could say that this person who is angry that, that Letitia James is trying to take his company and that, uh, you know, Fannie Willis is trying to lock him up could get back in the White House and do a lot of damage and would not care if he did it. So 
people who are actively endorsing that happening is hard for me. That's not that's not even about me and conservatism. I, you know, I feel like I have friends who are conservatives. We can argue to the cows come home, but as long as you're not, the, you know, we're, we can disagree. As long as your the point that we disagree on does not threaten my right to exist and be happy. But at the point that it does, we're no longer disagreeing. We're, this is a problem. So of all the things we've talked about, wide ranging, including what you've talked about in, in your lecture, what do you hope people will leave here tonight with and think about, remember? Don't think about I was trying to be the governor of Louisiana. I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think that would have been a bad thing? Huh? You think that would have been a bad thing? <laughs> My motivations were not pure. <laughs> 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 Uh, well I mean I I would maybe I don't know if we talked about this or not I'm always interested in making sure that people understand that the work that we have to do is very much internal and that we you know it is always an exercise that that I do and I think that most people should do is to always see an issue and the people involved in that issue as if they were people in your family and which you respond to the issue and the people in the same way if they look like you were people in your family because we have been so conditioned to see people in the as other that even when we're being benevolent we're being we're pitying people rather than empathizing with people uh you treat them like pets or you know like in the same way we don't want animal cruelty we won't be we don't be cruel to these people but i still don't think they're like me like you know we you i think that exercise just becomes really important and all the books in the world about equality don't accomplish what that simple exercise can accomplish um because it just changes our dynamics and our thinking immediately so i always try to do that and i hope other people can do it too Thank you very much for your time and your wisdom. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.